Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shockey and I am the host of this, which is Africa is a Country's regular talk and interview show about politics and culture around the continent. This is a very special episode because this is a very special time. Every four years, the greatest spectacle on earth happens. We are talking about the FIFA World Cup. Need I say more? 32 teams are currently contesting their national pride in Qatar. It's a tournament that so far brought a lot of surprises. It's brought a lot of controversy, and we look forward to what else it will bring. Joining me on the program today to talk about the football, but also to talk about the politics of the football are two very special people to Africa as a country. The first is Sean Jacobs, who is our founder and editor and who is also faculty at the New School, as well as Tony Karen, who is an old collaborator and friend with Africa as a country who teaches the politics of global soccer and the graduate program of international affairs at the New School, and is also the editorial lead at AJ+. And the two of them are the hosts of a very exciting podcast on politics and football called 11 Named People. So if you haven't seen that yet, do give it a listen, do give it a watch on YouTube. And as part of our World Cup coverage, we are honored to be collaborating with 11 Named People to bring you the latest on what is happening in Qatar. So, Tony, Sean, welcome to the program. I mean, there's not much to say about the World Cup, why it matters, why it's important. Africa as a country has done a lot of writing about that over the years. And I think the one thing I want to first talk about before we talk about the teams, before we talk about who we think is going to win, which is the question I'm most keen to hear your answers on. There's been a lot of controversy over this World Cup, um, not only now, but even in the build-up, questions about how the award was given, questions about how the World Cup was put together, the migrant system that Qatar currently has, the allegations of 6,500 foreign migrants perished in the putting together of the spectacle, the now attempts by FIFA to effectively deflect criticism by pointing to the West's double standard, the people who are being defensive, the political football that is currently underway about the World Cup. So I suppose to start, I want to get a sense from both of you. Does any of this matter? Is this all grandstanding happening in the moment? Is there marriage to the criticisms? Is there marriage to the defenses being made? Should politics stay out of football? What do you both make of all of it? I don't know if Tony, let me go first. So one, politics should not stay out of football. There is marriage to the criticism, but there's also, like you said, um, a kind of ritual that the West does every time that there's a World Cup. Then suddenly they've discovered human rights. They've discovered, you know, suddenly they have like this point where they feel to this point and no further. Yet when you look closely so, so firstly, the, this is an aside. Well, it's not an aside. It's a big aside. This is, this is the first World Cup in which, in the, in the lead up to it, that we've had so many people, you know, people died kind of creating this World Cup, like regular workers who are building the stadiums. So that's, 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 that's like a big flag that you have to at least say. Secondly, it is true that this is, this is a, a government which is not democratic. You know, all those. Thirdly, there was a lot of corruption that led on to it. But here's the problem with some of those arguments. Part of the, when, 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 when Westerners make those kind of arguments, and I'll be quick about this because I know Tony's like, what's it bidding at the whatever for this? He's like, no, I'm not. I think it's partly, part of, part of, part of it, I saw Tony shaking his head. It's like, the way I'm answering this is like, there's a level at which I'm like, ah, here they do, here, here we go again. Everybody knows the cynicism of FIFA, we know about the history of the World Cup, uh, whether it's 1978 in, in Argentina, whether it's Russia, the way Russia got the World Cup, the way Russia hosted the World Cup. There's a documentary going on right now that even South Africa, when we know that it was a news, the level of corruption and bribery and paying of people. Jack Warner, they're trying to extradite him now to the US over the fact that South Africa, great South Africa, Nelson Mandela crying, lifting the cup, say, I'm going to host the World Cup. It's The World Cup's corrupt. Like, regular people know that. The issue is more to do, like, what can we symbolically, what do you what do you put on this? What do you as a regular person put on this World Cup? And I always, Tony's tired of me 
telling the story. Before 2010, I was in New York and I was on my way to go to South Africa. And the big stories I kind of heard was like, there was films going around uh, proclaiming how terrible the World Cup was. Um, you know, the sort of, but it was also done by a lot of people who never care about football. Suddenly they wake up, now they've discovered football and they're just going off. Um, but the point was, I asked regular South Africans, just like my, my brother, my cousin, whatever, yo, are you, what is your view on all this stuff around the World Cup? And they were like, yo, the World Cup is coming to my region. Nobody asked these questions about Europe and immigration and not letting people in when they have tournaments. Why are you asking this only? So there's that. So I think the, to sum it all up, all these things are real. But I think it's really what 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 grabs what make people in the in the third world. There's been lots of articles like, why aren't people in the third world saying anything or doing anything? Because they also know y'all are hypocrites. I think that's where this comes from. And then you basically, when you host it, we cannot ask any of these questions. You host it in the middle of like denying people access, people, kids dying on beaches, uh, extensive racism. Then we must just say, no, keep doing a tournament. So that's where I think the problem around the tournament arises. And that's kind of the, the backdrop. I, I'm not saying that I'm not, that I'm oblivious to all these things. We're not. But I think there's, it's the hypocrisy that gets people. And then we're like, you know, the, then, the, then it gets other things like the symbolism of Iran beating Wales. Like that's what, what gets us. That, that sort of, which is the Iranian team who put their lives on the line by saying, I'm not singing the national anthem amidst a political crisis. And Westerners will be making all this noise and sucking up all the air. I'm going to wear one love. Oh, man. And then FIFA says, oh, no, we're going to give you a yellow card for that. And immediately they said they're not doing their one arm uh, thing anymore. So it's those are the things that, that, that rankles and beats people up in the third world. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think, look, the in general, like if we take all of those kind of issues that are being raised, like firstly, how you get the World Cup. It's like what FIFA Gate revealed was that every World Cup since France 1998 has involved some degree of kind of what would effectively at least morally be called bribery. So it's like, I mean, I remember this when when um, when this thing first came out. It's like, oh, Qatar, how did they get it? I'm like, wait, do you, remember, do you remember Germany? How did they get it from South Africa in 2006? <clears throat> like, basically, they paid a, a New Zealand delegate to vote against his mandate from his, you know, thing. Now, this is Germany. This is like, you know, the moral, supposed carriers of kind of moral rectitude and all of this. It's like, come on, man. The, the game is played a certain way. Qatar played the game. I have no doubt about that. Um, and it's the same game that, that has always been played. FIFA is corrupt. Absolutely. Top to bottom. We've always known that. So it's like, you know, <clears throat> I mean, this is an example just uh, by the way, Sean will also be sick of me hearing me say this, but <laughs> in the class where people go, whoa, FIFA's so corrupt, how can you watch the World Cup? <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the parallel I use is the Catholic faithful who know that the church hierarchy, the bishops, the clergy have been involved in years and years and years of, you know, all sorts of and malfeasance, most recently in like the child abuse stuff and, and Nazis. In, in protecting it. But it doesn't change the meaning of the mass for them. It doesn't change the meaning in their lives of sitting in the pews on a Sunday. That is global football fans and FIFA. Nobody believes that FIFA is a good, you know, it represents righteousness or anything like that. But football means something else in our lives. So, okay, there's, there's that. On the substance of the issues, of course, there are major issues of labor rights in, in, in Qatar. And a migrant worker system, which, by the way, was inherited from British colonialism, which never gets a mention. Like, actually, this system was basically modeled on and, you know, created by the Brits originally and modeled on the system of indentured labor that gives you, you know, why do we have an Indian diaspora in the Caribbean or in East Africa? <clears throat> because of the indentured labor system of the Brits. So this is not whataboutism or whatever. It's recognizing, you know, gay rights. Okay, another one. Important issue. OK, and, you know, it's often understood outside of context, but that, you know, um, the the when it comes to <clears throat> like, if you think about I'm going to say it, I don't know if, if continu continuum is the right word, but, you know, England won the World Cup in 1966, right, when they hosted gay sex in England at that time was illegal. It was a crime. 
right? But it isn't now. So there's like movement along uh, a spectrum. And you kind of hope that this kind of connection and involvement with the world and being under scrutiny and so on actually um, helps to move things in that direction. And I, I mean, I'm not going to go into, you know, you know, all the, all the <clears throat> counter arguments about Qatar is basically not a place where you can make public shows of affection, whatever the sexual orientation. Like I've known, um, you know, of, of colleagues and friends who've, who've gotten into trouble just putting their arm around their spouse who, you know, in an emotionally <clears throat> difficult situation because in Qatar you just don't do that. So, yes, I mean, this is like about moving things along. The labor stuff in particular, like I, the people who work on this stuff in Qatar who work on actually um, trying to change, you know, a, a brutal kafala system to something that's more... Um, <clears throat> that, uh, that that gives more rights and 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 you know to to those migrant workers, um, have, you know, have basically seen the World Cup has been important because it's shown a spotlight. It's forced engagement. It's forced changes in the laws. The laws have the laws been properly implemented? All the NGOs say no. Like they they need you know to do a better job. But now they're under the spotlight. That kind of helps them. I mean, what I'm I'm hearing as well is for a lot of people working in that space, they're not necessarily that thrilled about the the sort of uh, performative sort of stuff that they're hearing, you know, from uh, Western European governments, et cetera. Um, I won't go into, <clears throat> you know, there, there's like a, a, a media critique that you hear about that 6,500 number, which is, yes, it was every, it was counting every national from all of those countries over a 12 year period, whatever they worked in. So it could be teachers, it could be nurses, it could be elderly, <clears throat> et cetera. Uh, the point is like a number comes out there and, you know, it's, it's like a, I mean, it's not even the guy in the bench says it's not, you know, that the 6,500 number is not necessarily people working on the World Cup. On the other hand, you know, the Qatari authorities were saying, well, it was 37 people. And obviously, you know, the, a lot of the NGOs are saying, no, obviously it's a much higher number than that, but nobody knows the actual number because uh, there's not enough, um, <clears throat> what's the word? Uh, um, uh, clarity is not the word transparency in how deaths are recorded so this you know all of these things are in play they they're like pushing um to make to make changes and the world cup has has been an occasion for that so no yeah i mean i don't think anybody's saying this you know this is a good situation or whatever but is is the world cup making a a, a bad situation better i i mean i think that i've heard a lot of you know independent um observers say yes i mean you know absolutely this this ultimately helps things, helps move things along. And so, you know, yes, it's an ambivalent thing. I mean, like basically, and then as Sean says, sorry, I'm rambling now, but you, you did ask. <laughs> as, Sean, as, as Sean says, there's this kind of the Western media, particularly European, um, Western European and British media of like the, the kind of shock horror, like, oh my God, like this is, 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 is like, um, look how migrants are treated. And then, yeah, I mean, as Sean says, how are migrants treated in Europe? I've seen people say, you know, the, the World Cup in Qatar is far more accessible to people in Africa and Asia, not simply because of it, it, it's easier to travel to Qatar from there but in terms of airlines and stuff, but also because of visas where, you know, we know if the World Cup was being held in Italy now, what, you know, a lot of people from Asia and Africa wouldn't be allowed to attend because they're, the 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 um, the restrictive um, you know Im immigration policies and so on. so that's just not part of the conversation. I mean, I was sort of half joking the other day when when um, the I mean it's not a, it's a very serious matter. But you know the w next World Cup is going to be held in Canada, the U.S. and and Mexico. So wait, in the United States right now, you know basically any visiting fan for the World Cup is in danger of getting shot in a mall, getting shot in a gay nightclub, getting shot just about anywhere. And the government is unable to protect people from that situation or refuses to. Like, is that part of any, you know, is anybody saying, oh, we shouldn't have the World Cup in the United States because visiting fans are unsafe because they are unsafe in, in that sense. No, nobody's, nobody's saying that. I would say, no, that's not, a, that's not, you know, I would never advocate doing that but in some ways we need to think about like what it is that we're actually i'll, I'll add two quick uh, two quick other points the one is and, and again like tony said all this stuff is floating around so it's not like we we are uh you know telling you something different or new but it's worth saying them 
the two quick ones are like one on the sort of moral relativism of the West. Like the the big one is the German team before their game putting their hands over their mouths. Um, and I saw on Twitter uh, some Palestinians asking, that's the same German public sphere, German government who's going after people who show any form of support for BDS or Palestinians. So it's like this, this, it's a you know, the, the politics of this stuff is, or this is the same UEFA that has Israel playing in it. Well, Israel is having, is occupying uh, Palestinian land. The other one is, and this is, I'll say this quickly because I know Tony might say something about this. I think there's something else going on. One is Qatar to, to have like, to, to have a situation in which like, who can host the World Cup? Who has the money to host the World Cup? You can host the World Cup in, in Italy or France or whatever, and then you end up paying for it forever. But the Qataris have so much money, they could pull this thing off very quickly. I don't think there's any debt that they are having as a result of this thing. This is at, at that sort of geo-global level of like who can run things and who can do things. This is messing a little bit with the European, I think, with the European mind. And more than that, I was hearing podcasts like last week. I remember texting Tony about this. We're very like people that people value as soccer commentators or writers about football from the guardian saying things like oh europe and south america should break away and we should have our own like tournaments with because we don't need the africans and the asians what's that about again because something happened to fifa if you i don't think these people mean that but before the africans and the asians came into world football which is in the late 19 1960s right that culminates in 1974 in the expulsion of apartheid South Africa, which Europe and, Europe and South America wasn't doing. Secondly, that's when Samaran, uh, was, what was his name, who came, Havelange became the president and changed the way that world football was organized, where tournaments were being held. Now, you can debate as to why he was doing it. He wasn't altruistic. The point is just th there's a certain madness in Europe about world football is changing. It's not the same. There's also people in other parts of the world who feel ownership to football. It's, it's their game too. And that, at some level, that is not good news if, you're, if you're, you have a certain sense of entitlement that this is your game. None of this takes away, as we said, none of this takes away from the fact that people died. You know, there are questions about, uh, you know, the way that, some of the way, the way Qatar got the World Cup, etc. None of this takes away from that. But I think that it, there's just a level of like very little self-reflection, which is that's when you're like, you're sitting and you're watching Infantino, who's like not the greatest person in the world. And you're like, I kind of agree with him when he <laughs> called them out. You know, it's, you know, he's sort of bullshitting, but you, you're just like, ah, he's got a point. I got nothing to say to that. <laughs> it's like that meme of that one guy with that expression. Uh, and it says heartbroken, the worst person in the world just made a great point. <laughs> I, I think there's something else. I mean, you know, just following on from what Sean is saying and the idea of like the decentering of, of the West and of the sort of industrialized North or whatever in, in this process. So, you know, as a football fan myself, as like a football obsessive in the pews every, you know, three times a week as it is, as it were, like or more or more. So, you know, we know the epicenter of the global game is Europe, right? The, like in some ways, if the World Cup is the United Nations General Assembly, then the Champions League is the Security Council. Like that's where the real power is. Um, that's where all the world's best players show up. We, there's nobody at the World Cup who we don't see sort of every week. It's like the five Brighton players have already appeared at the World Cup. Like it's, you know, so we know where that power is concentrated. No, I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, in terms of like the way this tournament's received, you know, by people who don't think about politics is like, say, so I'm thinking, you know, the base of European fans and then I'm sort of, well, by extension, because I watch those European leagues, that's, uh, you know, me also. It's kind of annoying. It's a disruption of our, uh, of the league season. So like, what the hell is, is, is happening when you stop your season like in November and then pick it up again after, after Christmas and then, um, Basically, it's not in summer in, in, in Europe. Um, it's not in summer, so it's basically um, nobody's on holiday. 
everybody's at work, the kids are not able to stay up late, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's just like this idea of it's like this annoying thing. But then if I think about it critically, holding the mirror back to myself and remembering where I'm from, it's like, well, the same thing happens with AFCON, right? Like there's always this irritation about the Premier League clubs having to give up their African players for a month in the, <clears throat> in January, basically, and how disruptive that is and so on. But, you know, I, I'm guessing, I mean, I'm imagining summer, like the June-July period uh, in Africa, when the World Cup normally is, nobody's on holiday. Nobody is, is able to kind of rely, ah, oh, it's the World Cup, it's part of our summer experience or whatever. So it's like, yeah, it's okay, it's moved around. It's kind of annoying for people in Northern Europe to get used to, but it's also the idea of sort of decentering things a little. It's a bit, you know, to use a cliche of popular cliche of the moment, to some extent, it's decolonizing things. And I think this point about decentering is important, not only on the level of sports, but I think the big elephant in the room is that the decentering of the West is the lead story of politics in general, in the sense that there's a massive geopolitical realignment underway. We're moving into, since the war in Ukraine, into a multipolar world where the West's kind of undisputed political, economic, and cultural hegemony has been utterly shattered. And I think that the pole clutching responses in significant part reflect this fear and panic about the West kind of not being at the center of the world anymore. And this heightened emboldenedness, at least on the part of countries in the global South to call attention to the hypocrisy and double standards, I think is, is terrifying for, for a lot of these governments. And, and that's why even in, that's why they exhibit this kind of lack of self-reflection and, and go about sort of virtue signaling and everyone is, is very quick to say, well, you're ones to talk. No, no, oh, totally. I don't know if Tony wants to respond first on this, but you're right. There's a, well, really? yeah. Well, one that I think there's, there's a, where are the most interesting political ideas coming from about how to be human? Like how to live better. The Caribbean, sorry, if, if you ask. Yeah, it's coming from the Caribbean with Mia Motley. Uh, if it's no, I'm about, saying historically with Fanon, with, with, with Amy no, Cesar, but if, with, present, if we're asking like in the present moment, I know what you mean by like Fanon, Cesar, sorry, whatever, no, no. but if you're asking like right now, when you think about like, what does it mean to be human and how do we live fully? Okay, there's lots of bad ideas coming from the Global South, Modi, Bolsonaro, but there's also, I think it's Barbados, yeah, like Mia Motley, who's the Prime Minister of Barbados, is coming with a sort of idea like like you know she's she's consistent like in the way that she's attacking like the moment we live in some of the great ideas about how do we organize ourselves politically to fundamentally change the way we live comes from colombia like what they did in colombia where they actually went and tackled like you know they the, the people who came to power are going to try and tackle class inequality race inequality the environment um you know, the, the sort of victory of Lula in Brazil, I don't know. It means like something more than I think when Biden beats Trump. It's like a weird, there's there's some, that that messes with, I think it does, it does mess with your sense of empowerment. And if you bring it to football, and I was, I, I was trying to make that point and then I forgot it. When I said what happens in the 60s and, and in the 70s with the expulsion of South Africa, the election of Havilland, Blatter, Infantino, and all this, Part of that story is also that Africa suddenly got in, in FIFA, each country has one vote in. And so you got more, there's, there's 50 something countries in Africa. There's another kind of 50 in Asia. This is why they're saying, oh, if Europe and South America can break away when, when we bring, I heard this is literally what I think it was, I don't want to mention names. And then the market, they said like, Oh, and then we have the TV market of the USA and Mexico. I mean, it just sounds like terrible because there's a feeling of like you've lost control. This is not about you would like also a better world. I'm telling you that Africans and Asians who are watching the World Cup, of course, they don't want to live under Qatari condition, whatever the kafala. Nobody wants to live under that. They would like to move around, get jobs. There's nothing that says I shouldn't go, I shouldn't be from Bangladesh. 
and I shouldn't be working in Qatar. I shouldn't be going to Nepal, swimming from Nepal and working in Qatar. But I would like a decent life. And part of the story is like that Qatari system, as Tony pointed out, not just historically, but also in the present, it's the way it's structured. It's like the top tier of it, the, the people who run the oil companies, the people who run management, they're from Europe of the very companies doing that kind of stuff. So that's where it just, where, where, where this, that's why I'm saying like, it, it's just, you're like exhausted. You're like, but come I, on, stop. I, yeah. no, that's great. I agree. But I know all of that, but I think what mm-hmm. Will was talking about, let's unpack a little bit about the geopolitics of the mm-hmm. moment, because in some ways this whole thing is a metaphor for the geopolitics of the Ukraine moment in some ways, where like the the sort of NATO countries, or at least most of them, um, are sort of like pursuing an agenda that doesn't resonate at all with the global South. And it's not like people, you know, you look at how everybody in the in the General Assembly votes to condemn Russia invading, illegally invading Ukraine, occupying another sovereign country, etc. Like no question. But at the same time, not prioritizing this over all sorts of other issues to the point that like the rest of the world must pay for a sanctions regime and pay very heavily. The poor of the global South <clears throat> must pay for that in bread prices, etc. Because basically uh, this liberal international order that Biden harps on about is actually a colonial and neo-colonial international order. It's a bunch of laws that are basically codifying the unequal property relations created by colonialism. And, you know, in the, in, in the global south, and it's not even left or right. It's like there's this like, wait a minute, why are we um, prioritizing the question of NATO and Ukraine over the ability to feed our people? Like, that is nuts. Like, that's the kind of uh, expectation. And there's this like idea of like, whoa, you know, you can also see it in football. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see because there's so much overt Palestine identification now. In, in Doha at that World Cup. The flag you're going to see most often in those you know, stadiums and in the crowds is the Palestinian flag. And this is also a comment on the hypocrisy of FIFA. That basically it's like three weeks after Russia invades Ukraine. Russia is kicked out of the World Cup. Its teams are, are kicked out of all the European competitions, etc. Meanwhile, Israel which is basically occupying, uh, you know, illegally occupying Palestinian territory and systematically continuously violating even FIFA's own rules, right? About you know, settlement teams, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like, no, no, like, you know, we don't, do, we don't do politics in FIFA. Like that's literally what they said <clears throat> in relation to that. And like you're seeing that, that trend now in the global South where people are just like, no, no, that's not, this is not how we're going to make the world and remake the world. And really the global situation now is one where the post-1945 consensus among the western powers is actually crumbling like so much of what they created in the first few years after world war ii and the systems the, you know, the liberal international order and the, uh the rules the, all the partitions that they that they they made everything that was created in that moment and also the denial of sovereignty oh, that came with national independence that you know suddenly everybody got political independence but no control actually over their economic life and suddenly that's almost boomeranging back where you're suddenly seeing the same thing happens in, in Western, Western countries now where you elect a government, but basically the bond markets tell them what they can and can't do. And whether you see that as hobbling people, social Democrats or hobbling like right-wing lunatics, either way, the bond market, you're realizing we're ruled by capital um, not, and not by a, a, a committee of capitalists. We are ruled by capital itself. Um, and, and so, you know, this, it's a very interesting moment where, um, you know, what, what you're seeing on show here it speaks to very much the political moment uh, globally as well. And why that liberal international order is, is, is basically on its last legs as much as Biden, et cetera, would like to imagine they're reviving it. Couldn't have said it better. Um, I think... To now talk maybe a bit more about the football itself. Um, the, 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 the quote which 11M people is inspired by is the one from the great Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm, which reads as follows. The imagined community 
of millions seems more real as a team of 11 named people. So, I mean, I want to talk about who we think will win, but I want to first talk about who we want to win, which is which team, I think, which team embodies the spirit of football at its highest, which team contains not only players we think can contest for greatest of all time status, uh, but which would make for the best story of either overcoming adversity or punching above your weight as underdogs or whatever it is. What's what's the team which has the best story in this World Cup? Well, can I come back with a, a slight curveball on the or reverse Please. pass? Cruyff turn on the on the the question of eleven named people. When those people are named Williams, that's an interesting moment because which communities are being imagined when you are Nico or Inaki? Um, and you know the and I have to say the, because I do love that about FIFA's rules about acknowledging migration essentially that you can play if you are, are Inaki Williams you can play for Ghana where you were born where your parents came from or you can or if you Nico you can play for Spain where your your parents migrated to and settled um, and there was actually a beautiful moment I had this was, it was completely unexpected for me but listening to the Spain game. Um, when the commentators on the Fox channel that we get it on, um, uh, Ian Dark and Landon Donovan, who used to be a, a U.S. player, were essentially honoring the sacrifices that Nico Williams' parents made to get them to Spain. They're talking about them walking through the Sahara bare feet and, you know, just saying, and Landon Donovan saying, yeah, and like, you know, my kids complain when they get the wrong brand, brand of chocolate milk. Like saying, hey, everybody, like recognize and respect and honor what uh, Nico Williams represents in that Spain show. And the idea that migrants actually should be honored and respected, et cetera, in a European context, which is qu quite amazing to me, like, you know, very, very powerful. But sorry, that's just a bit. So I'd be happy with any of the, either of the Williams brothers <laughs> coming out on top in this World Cup. That's uh, like wistful thinking. That's like wishful thinking. Um, no, no, I, I agree with your analysis of like the 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 this kind of recognition of migration and movement and the FIFA for that. I always love football. Football's football pioneered that, and now like you find it in other sports and rugby. Some of it, some actually, that's another thing. Oh, the Qataris—they're having they're buying a team. France buys a team. England buys a team. They. England doesn't accept or is very uh, anti-immigration. France is anti-immigration, except when it comes to the football team. If a third world country does it, we're all up in arms. Anyway, let me answer your question of like, who can win it? Who do we want to win? And who do we think best represents like that sort of Hobbsbornian whatever idea? <laughs> oh, I initially wanted, so, so and, and I, I'm going to show my ambivalence about these things. I initially thought, Argentina should win this World Cup. Um, and, and again, not because I love Argentina. I think I held my, my kind of residual thing about Maradona. Was, you know, I love Maradona. But when you do that, what you forget is like Maradona and that 86 team, particularly Maradona, is like the pivot of it was an exception. He was an exceptional player. And so he made you kind of fall for some kind of thing about Argentinian football. But that meant, like, when you do that, you're, you're forgetting and you're, you're suspending what you know about Argentina and football, which is anti-football, cynical. Uh, it's not actually very good. And it gets away with things. And then you watch Argentina play Saudi Arabia, and they do exactly that. They do exactly that. And also, Messi may be the best player in the world, when he played at Barcelona, you actually see what we've always known. And I think after this podcast, I'm going to eat my hat, as I always say, with pepper soup, because what if he wins the thing? But there is a history of Messi in the World Cup where he just falls apart. He just doesn't know, because he doesn't, he doesn't have like a good team that goes with it. Now I get to my second part. There's a three-part answer. The second part is Brazil. So we all, particularly if you're from South Africa, like from Africa, South Africa, up until roughly 1990, 
Africans, they took their, their uh, uh, but I'm old enough to remember this, you kind of, it's not displaced, you put your hope in Brazil, because Brazil, whether it was in the dictatorship, when they, whether it was when they were becoming a democracy, but on the field, they were like the best representation of like what the, the football, what football could be like is like, I saw someone on Facebook said yesterday, uh, Brazil is like, is like, again, like a, 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 it's, it's the best evidence of when humanity created something beautiful. It's, it's, it's always been a proxy for the global South, like Bob yeah, Marley. I also feel like how beautiful and how imaginative and how wonderful football makes you feel when they play. So my problem was before the World Cup, I didn't want to root for Brazil because Brazil's national team had all these players in it who supported this ogre, uh, Bolsonaro. And there was like one player who we know is nominally, <laughs> nominally he, was, he was on the other side politically, which is Richarlison. People hate him. I love Richarlison. No, well, he's a Tottenham fan. So I love, I actually love Rissalosan. I love that grit. I love that stuff. I've always liked players like that, whether it's him, Ibrahimovic, whatever. So I want to go quickly because I know I know I could go on and on about this stuff. But the point is like, I was I and I remember tweeting before the game, I was like, so do we are we supporting Brazil? I will say this. Neymar is now gonna is now kind of is injured, which is like that solves my problem of not wanting to root for him and his Bolsonaro things. He's out. In fact, I got texts from Brazil from a Brazilian friend. Who said who cursed actually that like we're good good riddance he's gone now we can actually now just and then Richarlison scored the two goals Richarlison mm-hmm. scored the two goals and and there's a great one on on the, somebody tweeted like the movement of his body when he made that like flying kick <laughs> they said they make it look like the L for Lula. <laughs> like yeah. L for Lula. So yes. there you have it. So that's the thing. I think it's. It's going to build up uh, like to this point where we're going to start rooting again for Brazil because Brazil just came. They were Serbia like playing this negative football, not doing anything. Did Serbia even have a shot on goal? And here's Brazil taking the game to them, taking the game to them and eventually breaking them down, creating chaos, scoring the goal. And this is my last one because I know, Tony, you're ready. Here's my last one. The one other team that I think represents something and it's a complicated history, and I, I'm interested. I'm actually interested in it for some project I'm doing. Is Portugal? Is Portugal? If you don't spend your energy on Ronaldo and how horrible he is and all that other stuff, that's the one other team that is a bit like Brazil. Now the way they got there is a complicated history. We don't have all the time for it, but like the the idea that Portugal became almost like this then racial country on a football pitch dates back to the late 1950s when the dictatorship in order to prolong colonialism, said that anybody who's in the colonies are also a citizen of Portugal. So they created a sort of non-racial identity politics, but within a dictatorship. And that's how you have Eusebio. That's how you have, there's a South African player, David Julio, David Julio, who played for Portugal in the European Cup in the late 50s, early 60s. So like you have like, you have like a sort of the development of a non-racial identity in football terms. Portugal's not, you know, the greatest country on earth. But now, I mean, I know it has a sort of social democratic um, prime minister whose family came from India, by the way, originally. But anyway, my point is like, there's Portugal, forget Ronaldo and everything that he represents. But the other team I think that comes close to it, maybe for me now, is Portugal. I would love for an African team to win the World Cup. I know that's not going to happen. But yeah, I think it's now for me, it's Portugal, Portugal, Brazil, um, I cannot root for European teams. Apart, it's funny. I could root sort of for Portugal because of what I know about its history, but I will not root for any of the other European teams. I cannot. I just can't. Tony's on mute. You're on mute, Tony. So much in there because you're reminding me there of things like talking about Argentina. For me, like I'm old. I'm much older than you all, so. I watched that 78 final and I was like, the the way Argentina played that game, to use a South African term, fail. (laughs) It was horrible to watch. They were (laughs) kicking, they were fouling, they were like, you know, they were getting away with, they played anti-football then as well. So anyway, um, there's, there's that. I mean, on Brazil, one observation, I think we all accept Brazil was all, this tournament was always Brazil's to lose and they don't look like they're going to lose it. Um, 
on the contrary, like they, they are looking amazing. One thing I would say, this is not exactly the spirit of 82 and 82 was a little bit naive, but this is definitely not the Dunga football of the nineties. So that moment where, you know, after the trauma of 82, when they were the most brilliant team to watch, they were just amazing. Like, just like, we're going to score more than you. So, you know, you score, that's fine. We'll just go score more. Um, and, you know, like very loose at the back, very loose in midfield, et cetera. And, and they then the, the 90s comes, of all time. But, so but remember, in the 90s, it starts when you start having Brazilian players starting to play in Europe. Like they all go to Italy. And so Dunga almost personifies that. That Brazil win in 94, ugly, man, which is horrible to watch. Sorry. But, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't like uh, flow. It wasn't. Uh, uh, what, what, what's the uh, uh, what Bolsa Familia? The it wasn't Joga the, Bonito, Joga Bonito. Joga Bonito, right? Yeah. So now, this again, like you watched that game yesterday, they're playing against a very con I mean, that Serbia team's pretty good, they had a lot of very good players, at least in midfield and and, and attack. And they are like on the front foot and they have all of this attacking stuff. And there was a moment like Alexandro, the, the left back, basically. Um, making a run for taking a shot that was narrowly wide. And I'm like, damn, that's that junior from 82. Like the idea that your fullback is, you know, and the Carlos Alberto, you know, etc. Like this is like, okay, this is closer. This is a mature version of 82, should we say. I mean, they're not loose and free-flowing. The forwards do a lot of defensive work. I mean, Richarlison was doing defensive work. Like, whoa, that was just, you know. Um, so, I mean, they're exemplifying a lot of what's great about football. I think, and, and, you know, more power to them if they can win it playing this way. A um, couple of small notes because I'm from, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. So in some way, what's Brooklyn's team in the World Cup? Ecuador, right? Like there's more, I, I think there's more Ecuadorians here than I've seen any, any other sort of World Cup, you know, uh, representation. Um, uh, you know, I would love to see them. Uh, the Mexicans will have something to say about that. This is true. Actually, I'm forgetting about Sunset Park. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I exact. But actually, I was going to say, like c coming from here, like you, you want Mexico to to have a good run for sure. You want Ecuador to 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 have a good run. Um, in terms of like, what's the word? Like counterintuitives. I have expected. No, I can't say if this is going to pan out or not. But I have expected that Uruguay is going to be a bit of a surprise. That Uruguay will go further than than. Expected, and again, they had a terrible, well, they had a not great first game, but yeah, I think they could they could hit their stride. They just have so much quality. I mean, the back four are a little are a little old now, but you're talking Betancourt and Valverde in the midfield. You're talking Darwin Nunez, um, Cavani, and Suarez. Like that, that, they're a formidable team to 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 deal with. So yeah, I mean, I could see Spain actually like this is a kind of refreshed Spain in a way. It's a strange spin. Like, they don't take Tiago Alcantara to the World Cup. Are you mad? But, you know, they have these young, you know, the Gavi and, and, and um, Pedri. Um, you know, these players are going to be around for years, and they play beautiful football. And then they also have some innovations, like that guy, Danny Olmo. I mean, the guy looks, looks like an English. Yeah. He looks like an English forward from, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Like, and he's never played at a Spanish club. He plays in Germany. Um so you know, like, but but yeah. Wait, I mean, is Uruguay is Uruguay your Portugal? Uruguay would be my Portugal, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they are and, for you. Which which for Africans? Africans are like, yo, Tony, what you saying? They stole the thing from Ghana, but yeah, but we know. Did. We didn't what do you mean? They didn't. No, not me. Gave, I'm not saying that. Gave, I'm, I'm sorry, not saying but that, 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 that was a mother. Uh, Asamuakian's mother said, you should never have my son take a penalty. It's like, Uruguay went down to 10 men and gave them a penalty. That's, that's an easy pass. Yeah, win the game. It's not we stopping you. You need to win the game. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think, I think I, no one's mentioned this team, and I hate to say it, but I think England may surprise us as well. I don't know. I'm speechless. I'm speechless there, Will. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying... I'm not saying... Okay, I'll just, let me get on that. Let me get on that. On our program, which we can recommend people go listen to it, we brought on um, Peter Dwyer, who's like a scouser from Liverpool, and talking about that sort of ambivalence that, that he feels towards England. And even like us feels... like most Basically, most of us, we hate watch England. 
you hate watching England because historically, you know, they won't stop talking when they when they won the 1966 World Cup, and some people claim they didn't even win it. Football is perpetually always on its way home, and yeah, like they, they, it's annoying. And then they won now the women's uh, Euros, so it was we can't hear the end of that. They went to the final against Italy in the Euros for the men's, so you know you can't hear the end. Of, I think newsflash, news just saying, yeah. um, Brooklyn just suffered a painful blow because your man Gakpo just put Holland there. Ah, that's my favorite player for this World Cup. Yeah, he, yeah, uh, yeah, Cody. But I was going to say, like the 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 thing I think about England is it's a different England. This is now that that front line is nuts. Like Jude Bellingham, which Liverpool fans would like to get, Sterling, which who every time he silences all the nutcases and the right-wing British media, um, Saka. Saka is to, to talk about Hobsbawm's notion of the nation, because that's where Hobsbawm is mostly writing about, Tom Nier and Hobsbawm and all those people. You should probably, I think we should, I don't know, I'm not going to do it, but I don't think there's like a, it wouldn't be terrible if people rooted for England. Oh, from yeah. The, my politics is from, I don't, I would never root for England. But I could see now where people are like, okay, I forget this arrogant media and uh, yes. forget about Harry, forget about the two Harrys. <laughs> Harrys. But even I don't necessarily have a problem with Harry Kane. Harry Kane himself, his family are immigrants. No, like, it's not that. It's just that Harry Kane's got that English thing of like diving in a swallow diving. Yeah, he does it, then he gets away with it, and so yeah. on. So like, I like if another player does it. If another player does the dark arts, then it's a problem. If he does it, it's not a problem. But yeah, no, England, you're right. They're a dark horse, but I, I don't know. If they, if they win the World Cup, I'm going to be shocked if they do. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, they, they will go far. They will definitely go far. That's what you're going to get from me on England. Um, but as to whether or not I should like root for them, I'll root for some of their players. But I think what you see with national teams... Um, I mean, so Argentina almost exemplifies that. And Belgium always exemplifies that. Um, the question is, and I think to some extent England also, that national teams are usually reliably less than some of their parts. Like you take that same group of players, you look at where they fit into club football, and then you put them together as a national side, and you're like, wow, look at, look at this on paper. But then as the legend Brian Clough once said, unfortunately, the game's not played on paper, it's played on grass. <laughs> and yeah, the the they're gonna come up. Here's what I was gonna say when Tony was talking earlier when he mentioned Spain, and I think even if we could bring in France into that conversation, also they won with these sort of Harlem Globetrotters kind. Of, I don't know if that's a phrase. They won like Harlem Globetrotters. They were like playing people that they could bull, bully and show off. They were not again. We only judging after one game. Brazil. It was a real match, um, I would say. Mm -hmm. Argentina, it turns out, failed against um, the Saudis. So that's why people are like, what the hell? That's and problem. Belgium effectively failed against Canada. They were just... Yeah, Belgium failed against Canada. France, failed against stuff. France was showing off against Australia. Spain mm -hmm. was like literally beating up on... Who were they playing again? Um, was Costa, Rica, uh, Costa Rica. Costa Rica, yeah. Costa Rica is another team that comes with the same people for like five World Cups in a row. Joel Campbell in the front is just... It oh, Roger Pino is 38, man. You don't know there's any other footballers in Costa Rica. Like you kind of can bring the same guy back every World Cup. So, but my point is back to my main point, which is like Spain, France, Belgium, none of what they did. And I'm not convinced. Uh, Brazil could get knocked out at some point, but Brazil... That was like it was like okay, this is these people are here to play football. But you know, that I always like to do this thing um, at international tournaments about like the country that the the absent present country. You know, the pre, like the country that's mo that's not actually playing in the World Cup that's most represented. It often used to be Cabo Verde for a long time because they had a whole bunch of players in Portugal, Switzerland, right. Sweden, like. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not sure for this one, but I have to say, like, if you look at both England and Canada, you realize like the British Caribbean is actually very, you know, Jamaica particularly, like very strongly represented. At this World Cup, yeah. They're at yeah. this World Cup, yeah. 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 And who do we think, which African team do we think is going to go the furthest? Hmm. For, for me, Senegal. 
And they won. Uh, they beat. Look at, the groups. look at the, if you look at the groups. Moro um, Cameroon but, is but Tunisia worse. actually is, is look. It looks pretty Tunisia good. Tunisia looks nice. Cameroon looks. Ghana, like, Ghana gave gave Portugal a real challenge. I think Ghana is gonna. But then Ghana, uh, Ghana's football is a little chaotic for me. I'm just being honest about that. And also like Ghana, you can't like do the Ronaldo Sui celebration. <laughs> You're losing. I mean, that oh, was come a on, man. Come on. <laughs> like, talk about Ghana. Ghana's naive. Like, you score a goal, you go off. Andre Ayu is like hugging some dude. Oh, yeah, we just scored. He turns around the video. I really saw the video. He turned around and Portugal scored again 2 1. It's like Ghana, like, you're in the World Cup. Concentrate. I, yeah. Ghana's history in the World Cup is 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 except for that time in South Africa, this is this is sort of par for the course. If you go back, look at 2014 in Brazil, and you can see how how Ghana basically like lost every. I think they almost lost every game, um, or they drew like one I, game. I have to say one thing: if you look at the African teams at the World Cup, the one thing that stands out for me is like a dearth of African strikers, right? Yeah. There. Of like top quality, you know, and there's, there's no Samuel Eto. There's no, I mean, Mane obviously is injured. Um, but that idea, you know, the, a certain kind of player we were used to seeing, like as the top. as a guy, I forgot his name now. He played in France for many years. Um, I think he's on the bench or something. For, um, for who? For Tunisia. But uh, he's, uh, he's a short, bald, bald, uh, kind of short haircut. Yeah, Benacher, Benacher, I think he's. No, 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 it's not that. But anyway, he, I, I, I don't see him in the World Cup because he's old now. But you're right. There is a, you know what? On paper, Cameroon, yeah, should be doing yeah. really well. Napoli yeah. players, players at Bayern, but for some reason, it's just like they don't seem to do well in World Cups, except for 1990 again. Yeah, right. But this I'm looking at Senegal. Like Senegal are superb at the back and superb in midfield, but convert. Like even when Mane was playing, they they really Senegal got unlucky against the Netherlands. Like they played well for like almost the whole game. And then I think they lost the game in the last 10 minutes. It was mm -hmm. weird. It was like, hold up. This could have been a draw. You could have mm -hmm. one point out of this. And then it ended up they lost. The, they, they, they just lost the game at the end. So overall, I would say Senegal definitely for me is like has the best chance still. I still stick with my own to my yeah. old, old story. Maybe, as you said, Tunisia, Tony's point, Tunisia is second. Um, but the other teams, I don't have much. Uh, I don't have much for them. Yeah. I'm going to get cancelled for this. <laughs> I say, I'm just going to say don't sleep on Ghana. I have a feeling they're going to surprise. I, you know so. I can't we like We got robbed by them, like as a South Africa. No, in South Africa, they were our team in 2010. No, but in this for this World Cup, so, so the way it worked was there was the last group game and South Africa was playing Ghana in, in South Africa. And they got this like crazy penalty that was not a penalty which meant in the return match in Ghana, all they had to do was play for a draw. Yeah, oh, they, 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 yeah, they, the, the, I, I have a, I, I don't know, maybe I'm going to be slaughtered on Twitter for this, but yeah, I, I hold that grudge a little bit about their, about how they well, got yeah, there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And this is the first time that every African team is being coached by an African coach at a World Cup. How significant is that? I mean, has it sort of, do, you, do we think this is going to start uh, an exciting trend in African coaching where we no longer outsource our big tournament coaches or is it just an exception? It's not an exception. It, I think you're right. This is a, something is interesting is happening. If you look at the AFCON, I don't have the numbers, but the majority of the coaches at that tournament for the teams at the last AFCON, the last African Cup of Nations, they were African. So there was clearly... Even in the middle of the tournament, when they when Morocco fired like their their coach, they no Morocco sorry Tunisia they replaced him with the current coach the current um, Tunisian coach he took over during Afcon so there's like this sudden move of saying we are going to begin to trust um, like local expertise structurally it has to do with FIFA did invest a lot of money through CAF to the Confederation of African Football to train African coaches, to let them get their badges. Um, the other thing is, if you're watching football, Senegal appointed um, Alou Sisse, I think in, was it 2014 or something? And he's been around since then. He took them to the final of AFCON. 
He took them to the World Cup, uh, where they, you know, got uh, eliminated on some technicality about they had more yellow cards than South Korea. It wasn't because they were terrible. It was just about techni- technical stuff. And then they won the AFCON with him, the last AFCON. They won it with that same coach. So Senegal is sort of showing that you can appoint a coach. And my last point here is like, you have also the influence of the diaspora. Like, so Cisse is really a product of France, but there's a way in which African countries are now claiming those people. Otto, Otto Addo, who's the coach of German, of, 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 of Ghana, he's really, he's, you know, he's effectively German also, but Ghana recruited him. They brought um, Chris Houghton, whose father was Ghanaian and moved to England. He played for Ireland, but he's the technical advisor to the team. So there's this, there's also this like opening up and realizing, you know what? Well, maybe we can hire Herve Renard, who is doing really well now with Saudi Arabia, or we have people that are just as good. We're African of African descent, and we, you know, Morocco. The Moroccan coach grew up in France, um, and then when his playing time was over, he went to coach in Morocco. So there's, you're right. There's, I think there's a there's a there's a move away from the kind of mercenary coach that has done like you know eight nine. African teams from France, and we have no clue who that person is. So I think there's definitely a move to to something different there. I mean, this is totally unrelated to that, but I think it's an interesting moment as well, is when you think about what a national team coach is. Like, you'll notice that most of the coaches at the World Cup don't have much of a track record in club football. I mean, some do, like Van Gaal. um, But, you know, Gareth Southgate's never coached a club, right? He's never managed a club. And it's like, I don't even know if Deschamps has. Um, it, 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 it's kind of it's a different thing coaching a national team which is mostly tournament football etc like there, you know lots of the you know so it's it's much more of an opportunity in a way because you can see like the dearth of black coaches in in, in Europe um, at, at, at a club level uh, you know it's very stark but there's actually much more of an opportunity I think with national team football for you know um, coaches to like Often it's former players that you get coaching national teams or former good players because, you know, the players, the coaches who succeed at club level were usually not great players. Like Zidane, I mean, I've almost always wondered, like Zidane is kind of untested as a club coach because he basically inherited this galactic right, side. Right. And then, um, but um, and there's a story that he might coach France. He, he might be the next France coach. Yeah, which is fine. He'll be great. He'll be yeah, great. A story that he might he might coach. And just the last other another quick point. I also think that football is also a lot about football. It's like what you see and what you like your perception. I think Patrick Vieira, doing very well at Crystal Palace, mm. Mm. Um, has shown people that an Af- like well, he's technically he's really a product of France, but to have a black. Coach, I, 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 I want to say something quickly. I want to say one other quick thing. You got Nuno, and then you had Nuno, who was at uh, at uh, Tottenham yeah, and Wolves. But the um, guy that I would really love to see coaching Europe is Pizzo Mosamani. He's yeah. now he's actually in Saudi. He's coaching in yeah. Saudi Arabia, and I people were sending around this clip where Sky News was interviewing him. I was like, that's good for the Pizzo brand because British people are like learning about this guy. Like you know, a top league is learning about him. He should be, if he could get into it, if he could get a championship side, fine. But this guy could coach a Premier League team. I, I would love to see him in one of the mid-level uh, Premier League teams. It would be wonderful because we've, in the history of European top, top class European football, uh, at the executive level, only uh, 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 Marseille had a, had a Senegalese guy as like the CEO, director of sport. At the level of club football, you had Seedorf was briefly coaching at AC Milan. You know, like you had, you had some, uh, Thierry Henry was coaching some team in, in the league or uh, whatever. It's different. Benny And Benny is at now, Benny is at, uh, at, at uh, Man, Man United. So, you know, there's, there's changes. But again, I th- even before Benny could become a coach, I, I, I could see Pits. I want Pizzo Mosomani to be a coach. He's a brilliant coach. He took actually, you know, African coaches don't well. Black African coaches don't don't run or coach teams in North Africa. So I, I hope that I hope that this you don't want to stretch this like oh this is what the World Cup can do. But seeing African coaches running teams, it will be great if you have um, 
Patsuma Samani running a team, yeah. As a, as a last question, while we're talking about Pizzo and, and Benny, what will it, since we're all South Africans, what is it going to take to see South Africa at the next World Cup? What is, why is our football perpetually in crisis? It almost feels like a pathology and no matter how much you scratch your head to figure out whether it's a question of resources or, or leadership or whatever, it just seems like we suffer from chronic mediocrity where we can never make it to the biggest arena in global football. Football is democratic socialism. Without a, <laughs> watching yet another World Cup from our living rooms, having to pick sort of... Uh, Brazil, pick Brazil. I, mean, I can tell you, look, I haven't, I haven't paid attention. I mean, I haven't lived at home for many, 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 many years. So I can't say like I know the answer here, but I can remember something about the 90s, right? Which is there was a massive overrepresentation of um, players of a particular ethnicity from South Africa. I don't even know. I don't even know what what one. I'm trying to say there were a lot of colors in the team. Exactly, and basically, like completely over. Like you could have picked a, 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 a team like an 11 players in which seven or eight of the players would have actually or you know even more have come from that community so this isn't some you know there's no magical mystery to that it that was the legacy of sakos and basically that in the apartheid era sakos had actually built an infrastructure of grassroots football so that the five-year-olds were being trained by like you know the the the, the, the emerging quentin quentin fortunes etc Fortune, at the yeah. age of 1920 were also coaching the five-year-olds and there was this idea you were taught to play the game in a very structured way very young and so you have this thing it's almost like uruguay where uruguay has a population of three million and yet produces this excellence and south africa was doing that from that particular community i think because of that infrastructure which wasn't actually the case it was like you it's not just your talent pool available talent pool it's really the coaching the structure you put in place to actually develop that talent pool that was lacking i don't know how it is now but definitely your point is really that it's not because it's not because you're saying oh because it's like because because they're colored it has to do with the way that football was being organized yeah exactly. and the way that the game was being run and that there was a particular kind of commitment and then post-apartheid south africa that first generation like reaped the benefits of it mm -hmm. i think the analogy that I want to use for this story about South African football is, so I always argue that like the ANC in South Africa, they should lose an election. Then they get rid of like uh, all the kind of bad, like it sounds like, well, I don't call them the bad elements, but like as the party is currently structured, like the way that it's, it's, it's you know, it's corrupt, it, it's, 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 uh, it's rotting from the inside. So once you then you go in opposition and then you rebuild and another kind of party will come from it. I think that's the same with SAFA. Something drastic has to happen. SAFA is like the South African Football Association. Something drastic has to happen into like how football is organized in South Africa. I saw an article the other day. People should read the journalism of Njabulo Ngidi, who's one of the best football journalists in South Africa. And he did a story on on the corruption at the ABC Motsepe League. That's like the third division professional in South Africa. It's just like referee bribing, uh, people scoring like, you know, 20 goals to speak because that 20 goals is going to get you into the second division. Uh, clubs, clubs like literally like in the middle of the night, moving from one city to the next with franchise buying. So, flying football as well. Yeah, there's like historical clubs that are gone. There's no more Wits University. Yes, Wits, my team. Yeah, because right. Wits got bought by some outfit from the north northern province. Then that pop up in Cape Town. So it's like there has to be the, 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 the level of corruption in South African football needs to be arrested. The fact that there is a small, like the way that it's structured, the same club owners are also running the professional league. Also, the president of the, or not the president, but at the top level of the football association, there's very little development. Um, there's just yeah, it, it's 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 not good. And and this is my last point. And this is my last point. It also links back to questions of the nation. We come full circle to Habsburg. It links back to questions of the nation. In women's football, for example. One of the best footballers that went with that team that went to the World Cup in 2019 in France was the daughter of Congolese refugees 
that came to live in Cape Town. And by the way, who herself, that, that woman was a product of women's football, sort of Cape Town women's club football. If you look at men's football in South Africa, rugby does it. Yeah, rugby does it. Cricket does it. They, they bring in players who are the children of immigrants from Zimbabwe, from Ghana, you know, uh, whether it was, uh, what was his name, um, uh, Raymond Rule or uh, Beast or whoever was from Zimbabwe. In athletics, they do it, like players whose parents come from Ghana or come from Nigeria. They start running for South Africa. For some strange and bizarre reason, football seems to not want to do that. And you've had, like, I think there's a Colombian footballer who wants to play for South Africa. There's a football, I think, from Serbia who play for the top, for, for Mamelodi Sandons and Kaiser Chiefs. But for some reason, the the, the, the South African Football Association doesn't want to side, fast track them. You have, you have an immigrant population, Nigerians, Senegalese. They're now South African. Pick them. Pick them is my last word on this. President. Campaign starts now. <laughs> yes. I need like 12 bodyguards to pull that. <laughs> well, Tony and I are here to be your first two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> gonna make a meme out of me shouting, pick them, pick them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sean, Tony, thank you so much for, for coming onto the podcast now. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I hope all your predictions come true. And to you, our viewers and listeners. Carlos on for the golden booth. Yeah. Who, who, who the golden booth? Who a retirement Charleston, I support you 100%. Yeah. Uh, thank enough. you for tuning in. Everyone, go watch the World Cup. Tell us your predictions. Tell us who you want to win. Um, and we'll all exchange notes. Follow the AAC odds on Twitter. Sean's been doing a great job running that. Uh, let's see if he's on the money or off the ball. And thank you for listening. Cheers. Thanks.